It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. So you've been getting out and about, haven't you? Yeah. yeah. I, I woke up on Saturday morning and there you are on Five Live. I know. So I was, I was covering for Danny Baker and it was sort of a last minute thing. Nice to hear your dulcet tones on a Saturday morning. Ed rang me and said it was a bit like um, it was a bit like uh, finding your partner in bed with somebody else. And you've launched another podcast. <laughs> we mentioned this last week. It's not a podcast. It's a radio it interview show. That is also well, it's certainly a being advertised on the social media feed that I see as a podcast. Then, then you know, people are welcome to download it yeah. as a podcast. But uh, three podcast, Lloyd. That's that's me. Yeah, I'm flooding the market. Yeah, no, it's it's good. That's my the more plan. of you, the better. And you've been all over the media. Is your GQ thing out now? I think it is out. It, I think the I think your the, fashion spread. There's a video of it coming out at some point, but I think the interview is out with Alice Campbell. Yeah. Uh, did he give you a hard time? No, it was fine. It was a nice chat, chatteroo. A chatteroo. Yeah. <laughs> if you ever, if you ever, um, you want to launch another podcast, I think chatteroo with Ed Miliband could be the title. Mm, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, something just to to mention off the bat here is that you may start hearing adverts in the podcast from this week onwards. And the the reason for this is we've been doing it about six months now and people have given up their time for free to work on the program and we'd like to pay people for working on the program and and keep it going and make it into a sustainable thing. And a way in which we're going to do that is by having some adverts. But I just want to reassure people that you know, you know what politicians are like. Ed, Ed isn't like that. You're not, you're not making a penny. No, out of no this. not going to me. No, no. So, um, and I, I guess I, I, instead, I'm going to get a commission from Theresa May for all the policies of mine that she's stolen this week. Oh, there's been another one this week. Well, two actually. Monday was uh, housing. Uh, you know, use it or lose it, which, which was the you know developers who sit on land even when they have planning com- uh, permission and uh, don't um, use it. Uh, uh, you know, I said, well, we should be able to 
essentially buy the land off the developers and use it for um, uh, use it for housing. And it was branded as, I think, Mugabe-style expropriation by the Daily Mail. It's now a wonderful idea by St. Teresa <laughs> to try and revive the housing market. She's announced that. Um, Tuesday was energy prices, second reading of the energy cap bill. So we're all living in a Marxist universe, basically. Well done. Well, don't know about that. But, uh, there you go. Have you, have you been enjoying the way it's been um, uh, presented on Twitter? People putting the coverage of the policies side by side. Yeah, it's funny. I don't feel sort of annoyed about either the fact that the male are complete hypocrites or you know, the way they covered it, or the fact that she's doing the policy. You know what I mean? I don't feel a particular sense of. How outrageous! If bit- I sort of, well, I sort of think when your opponents start to adopt your policies, it's a sign of success. Well, congratulations on your success. Well, thank you. Um, so this week's episode, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about buses. So we did the show from a bus. I am quite disappointed that this week we're not in the British Virgin Islands. I, it would be quite nice, wouldn't it? Yes. We're talking about dirty money, tax havens. Uh, obviously, what's been in the news this week is the poisoning of the chap who'd become a uh who, who was a british agent um and who came back from russia in in 2010 and was found poisoned with his daughter in salisbury but but it raises a whole and we in fact we intended to do this before this whole incident happened it raises a whole set of issues around money laundering tax havens the extent to which britain is used as a center for money laundering which is slightly kind of alarming in, in terms of the way it is used you know, and, and just to give you a sense of the global scale of this um, problem, it's estimated on a low estimate that there's $7.6 trillion in tax havens. A lot of that is money that's coming from sort of illegal uh, activities. Um, the recent Panama Papers, which were leaks from those offshore um, uh, companies, uh, suggest that half of them relate to the British Virgin Islands, a British-dependent territory, so there's a whole set of it. There's a big issue for developing countries uh, about a lot of money which should be helping the poorest people in the world being diverted by dodgy dictators and so on to help them through some of these offshore companies. So there's a whole set of issues about dirty money, tax havens, money laundering. It's raised by the issue of the Russian uh, situation, but it obviously goes much wider than that. So we're going to be talking about that. What is the scale of the problem and what can be done about it? So are there reasons to be cheerful in that? Well. I don't think there's reasons to be cheerful about the situation, but I'm hoping there are going to be reasons to be cheerful about what can be done. And as well as that, we are joined uh, by a brilliant comedian, Pippa Evans. She does a lot of um, stuff around improv. I guess that's what she's known best for. But she also set up something called the Sunday Assembly, which I, I suppose it's a secular version of a church. It's, uh, it's really interesting. So, a bit like our podcast. In yeah. what way? <laughs> we, I have a religious devotion to it. And you're not saying we're like cult leaders. Not yet. So should we do our reasons to be cheerful? Yeah, what's yours? Um, My reasons to be cheerful, this sounds awful, but my wife has gone away to New York for a few days, so it's just me and my son, so it's lads, lads, lads. But you're about to go and take refuge with your mum and dad, I noticed. (laughs) It's about three hours since Sarah left. You're like me, three hours since Sarah left. Oh, it's time to head to the grandparents for for a bit of sort of salvation. The fourth emergency service kicks in. It's exactly that, yeah. I thought I'll get to the sea. My mum and dad live at the seaside in Prestatin. But why are you cheerful that Sarah's away then? Because I've got like a a bit of time with my son and we get to go to the seaside. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Uh, so my reason to be cheerful is also got a um, aquatic uh, sort 
sort of reference, which is that I was walking in the park um, with Justine uh, a few days ago, and I met uh, a man. I know people think I make up stories about meeting people in the park, but <laughs> I met this guy um, who said, oh, I'm a great fan of the podcast. I just wanted to say I listened to it while I'm swimming. And I stopped him and said, well, how do you do that? And he said, oh, swim P3 players. Swim P3? Okay, so I then told you about this, and I thought this is just me. I'm totally antediluvian. I just don't, you know, I, I don't know anything. But apparently, and then looked them up on the interweb, and apparently there are these things where you can swim and listen to MP3 sort of things. Are they bright yellow? I don't know. I mean, so a lot of waterproof things seem to be bright yellow. Yeah, but I mean, I, th- I, quite, I find swimming incredibly boring. Mm. Um, and I also find jogging very boring and sometimes quite dangerous, as you know. <laughs> but the thing about jogging is you can listen to music or podcasts or whatever. And I thought, well, that's the problem about swimming is you can't. Yeah. But apparently I'm wrong. So you're clipping them onto your swimming trunks then? I guess so, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, there you go. The existence so of I swim I feel P3 slightly players. reassured that you didn't know about them either. No. But apparently they've been around for ages. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. On the phone we have Luke Harding, who's a Guardian foreign correspondent and author of Collusion, How Russia Helped Trump Win the White House. Um, hello, Luke. Hello. This week we've seen in the news the poisoning of a former Russian agent. Um, so details of this haven't fully emerged. Investigations are ongoing. But it seems that there are often links between events like this, international organised crime, state corruption, tax havens and the City of London. You you work with this all the time. This is your world. But for people like me who don't, can you explain how that stuff is all sort of linked in, in basic terms? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the big picture is, is this, that you have uh, rogue states or revisionist states, if you want to be polite, like Russia, that take advantage of the inherent porousness of, of, of Western democracy in general, and, and British democracy in particular. This is a great place to launder money. We have very friendly lawyers and estate agents and private school headmasters. Uh, and, and essentially, the 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 sort of arc of operation is you, you steal money in Moscow or acquire money in Moscow, and then you offshore it to the West. Um, and the UK has proved time and time again that we're, we're very good at that, uh, at taking people's money uh, and allowing them to set up opaque corporate structures, um, registered at company's house in London, uh, and then to kind of shovel hundreds of millions of dollars through them. And of course, it has a has a sort of corrosive effect on life here. It makes housing um, in London practically unaffordable. Um, and another aspect of this porousness is that what we've seen in recent years is we've seen uh, the Kremlin uh, do these extraordinary and blatant assassinations on, on British soil. Well, in your work as a journalist, you led the investigation into the global laundromat operation. Some of the biggest high street banks in Britain were involved in that, uh, nearly $740 million worth of money from a, a, a huge money laundering operation run by Russian criminals. Can, can you tell us a story of like, how, how, how does that happen? How do these anonymously uh, owned companies come into it, British banks? I mean, it, it sounds like the stuff of thrillers. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like the stuff of thrillers, but, but uh, depressingly, it's all, it's all true. And it's all very easy. This is what we discovered. So the laundromat was a $20 billion plus scheme where a, a, a bunch of, you say criminals, but but in Russia, anyone who's a serious criminal is 
connected to the state and, and very often working for the state, um, managed to, to shovel a huge amount of money out into the Western financial system via Moldova, Latvia, and then about $700 million went through British high street banks. And what, what, what is, is remarkable is that professional money launderers use British company vehicles. I mean, there, there are all sorts of ways of laundering money, but that, that is their preferred option. And we found companies in the, in the laundromat, the global or Russian laundromat, which were declaring income to companies' house of £10 a year, we found one called Seabon Limited, which is in, in Tooley Street, not far from Westminster, which was actually laundered, laundered about $9 billion. And um, did anyone notice from, from the UK authorities? Um, no, no, they didn't. They didn't notice. Um, and we actually went to go and see the National Crime Agency to talk to them about this before we published our story. And they said, yeah, we're aware of the problem. Um, it's all a bit difficult. Sounds like what governments say. Perpetrators are far away. No realistic attempts of prosecution. Uh, and, and of course, life is difficult, but it, it seems extraordinary that it's journalists who are making the running on this. While the political class, not, not everybody, there are honourable exceptions, um, seem to be asleep. So, so what is that? Is that people turning a blind eye to it? Is it that they're under-resourced? Is it that they would see it as too difficult and time-consuming to unpick? What's, what's the culture of not looking at this stuff? I think there are two, there are two things. There's a, a lack of political will because it's complicated. But I think the more profound problem is that it's somewhere in, in, in the, the heads of, of, of the current government and perhaps previous governments as well, there's a sort of calculus that actually all of this money from, uh, from Russia, from Azerbaijan, from, from other, other kleptocratic post-Soviet states um, is, is, is good for the British economy. It's good for sushi bars, it's good for purveyors of luxury limousine services, it's good for accountants, it's good for the city of London, um, it's, it's good for peers who, who quite often end up sitting on the boards of some of these companies. And, and I think especially with Brexit looming, uh, you know, global Britain, you can go, you can segue pretty quickly from global Britain into global money laundering Britain, which is what we're doing already. And, and I, I find that really dismaying. Uh, and, I think I think we should try harder. What is it about Britain's laws, Britain's approach to this, apart from us being a world financial centre, that makes us the the kind of honeypot for all this? I, I think we're the honeypot because um, of, of law. But bear in mind that, that the people who, who who steal in Moscow or Siberia or, or siphon off money from from state contracts involving oil and and, and, and gas live in uh, a space where there, there, effectively there is no functional law. Judges can be bought, they can be influenced, um, there's, no, there's no dispassionate judicial process. The, the, the thing that the UK has the reputation for um, in Russia and elsewhere, as, as well as sort of first-class schools, is, is that we, we have an impeccable judicial system. So you see oligarchs who have business disputes, they have them all the time. Who will, who, who will sign agreements and come to London to, to sort out their disputes. They're all done under UK law. And, and this is the kind of great paradox, is that, that gangsters bring their money here, they buy property, they buy places in Belgravia, and, and then, of course, they are protected. Um, and, and this is the, the, the great anxiety. If you are a billionaire in Moscow, um, the, the, the big fear is that someone will uh, take your money away from you because it's, it's a sort of Darwinian 
jungle of, of feuding factions of competing groups so all uh, trying to get the ear of Vladimir Putin, who's the sort of supreme arbiter in these, these cases. And so you, you stick your money somewhere safe. Uh, you stick it in the BVI, you acquire assets. You can even buy a British passport. I've, I've met Russians who tell me that they bought tier one investor visas, uh, which give, gives them and their families, after five years, the right to get British passports. It costs two million pounds. And, and guess what? At, at, you have to buy government bonds. At the end of this process, you get your two million pounds back. So uh, basically, British citizenship, buying it is, is the perfect way to loan the money. Luke, thank you so much for joining us and for explaining the, the broader context of this so clearly. Thank you. Thank you, Ed. So listening to that is Tom Burgess, an investigative journalist at the Financial Times, whose forthcoming book is going to be called Kleptopia, How Dirty Money Conquered the World, and is looking at all of these issues of dirty money and tax havens and so on. And Naomi Hurst, who's a senior campaigner on these issues for Global Witness, which has been leading a lot of the campaigns around these uh, questions. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. Why don't we start with some of the basics? Because we've heard from Luke about the, the Russian connection to these issues. But it might be just useful, Naomi, maybe if you start just to just explain some of the basic terms we're dealing with, money laundering, tax havens, shell companies. What, what are we actually sure. talking about here? Yeah, it sounds quite complicated. It doesn't have to be. So um, at Global Witness, we've been exposing and campaigning on corruption for the past 20 years. Um, and some of our early investigations kind of looked at money stolen from trade in natural resources like timber and oil, blood diamonds, for example. But I think what our intrepid founders quickly found out was that actually this is a larger systemic problem. It's not just about stealing that money from like natural resources. Um, and transparency about that money flows um, are only one part of the puzzle. So we call it kind of the corruption life cycle. So we break it down to three parts. So you steal the money, but then you need to hide it. And then you get to do the really fun stuff. You get to spend it. So when you're stealing the money, there are lots of different ways you can do this. So you might award yourself contracts for lucrative oil concessions to a shell company that you secretly own. Or you might be asking for bribes like outright. It could be drugs, presumably. Drugs, anything. Actually. Organised crime. Yeah, organized yeah. crime. People, modern day slavery, organized right. crime, all that McMafia type stuff that we saw on, on telly recently. Um, so once you've got that money, then you need to hide it. Usually, as Lucas said, you know, you hide that offshore. So typically, you get a lawyer to set up a series of shell companies, um, and then you use those companies to set up a bank account. Okay. Shell company. So that is what we call an anonymously owned company. So fairly simply, you can go and set up a company in a place like the Cayman Islands, British Virgin Islands, and you don't even have to say who you really are. All that will appear when someone like Tom or, or Luke tries to find I've out. I've got who, several. Yeah. several. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for disclosing it. Um, not in my name. <laughs> obviously not. Um, so all that, that Tom and Luke will find, they'll find the company name and the address. Your individual name, your identifier, there'll be nothing to do with what's on paper. It's simply an anonymous company. And through that, you can set up a bank account. You can hide your money into that bank account through that company. You can set up a whole chain of companies that own one another. And are, they, are these, sorry, are these like Swiss so if you've got a shell company, doesn't have a name on it, mm. and then a lawyer then goes to a bank and says, I'd like an account for this company, please. Yeah. And the bank don't say, yeah, but who, who, who is it? Who's... The, the lawyer is the person responsible. Yeah, the lawyer is the person responsible and you'll just see, well, it's a company and it's on a company register. It looks legit. Fine. Off you go. Um, and so your anonymous company is the perfect veil of secrecy for you to use. So um, through this, you can hide your identity, but you get to use all that money. You've stolen the money. You've hidden it offshore in an anonymous company and then you get to spend it. So some of that might well be like invested in protection at home, rigging elections, um, kind of like paying out bribes yourself. But the rest of it... Nice be, cars. Yeah, nothing, yeah. 
private yeah. school fees. And High when the money's fees. taken out of the companies, yeah. these these shell companies are, are in places where it's tax advantageous. Lovely, so your sort of company really accounts and the money you would have to pay to the state on that. Is, yeah, is, is it's zero tax not, jurisdictions. Right. Um, yeah, zero transparency ju- jurisdictions. Um, these are like, there's a whole architecture of secrecy in our financial system that makes it super easy to hide and move money really quickly all around the world. Um, and uh, then it ends up in places like London. So as, as Luke has talked about, it's perfectly um, legal, very easy to buy property in the UK through an anonymous company. And and by great irony, you've done a series of investigations on this, but 221 <laughs> Baker Street, which is where Sherlock Holmes would have lived <laughs> yes. uh, if he'd existed, 221B in his case, um, is was one of these places. Absolutely. Which yeah, mystery on Baker Street. That's exactly what happened. So um, secretly um, owned companies were, through our investigation, we realised were linked to a guy called Rakat Alia, former head of uh, tax and secret police in Kazakhstan, and um, all sorts of links t- towards him. Um, he was died in suspicious circumstances in a jail cell in Austria where he was um, under arrest and facing corruption charges. And Tom... Tell us your perspective on this, because you've been doing lots of investigations into these issues and have exposed a number of cases of this kind of dirty money. Give us a flavour of it. I think I think an important thing to remember in all of this is what's really at stake. Um, Roberto Saviano, the, who wrote Gomorrah, a great book about the um, the Gomorrah in Naples, it's now a TV show, he had a great line about um, the British not caring about this because the bodies aren't on our streets and we tend to think of money laundering when we understand it at all as illegitimate money ending up in nice stuff. So the, the furs, mm. yachts, champagne, uh, kind of glitterati lifestyle. But the really terrifying and dangerous part of all of this and how um, financial secrecy plumbed through the financial centres, especially the city, how that is deeply damaging to lots of lives, often far away is the way in which they're used to entrench the power of kleptocrats, who are, to my mind, the, the, the rising form of rule in, in the world. Large parts of Africa where I lived for a few years, you could arguably pretty much everywhere from Beijing to Budapest, large parts of South America as well. So I'll give you an example. We, one of the stories we, we broke a few years ago um, was about a company, an oil company called Cobalt, American oil company backed by Goldman Sachs. It went off to Angola, beautiful country in Southern Africa, um, absolutely ravaged by war and now ravaged by um, the looting of its oil um, with, a, with a very, very repressive regime in charge funded by that oil. So Cobalt, this oil company, turns up and says, well, we fancy drilling in this particular part of the seabed, which looks like it's going to yield enormous amounts of oil. Uh, and the Angolan uh, regime um, says, fine, you, you can have the rights to drill there. But there's one proviso, and that is that you take as your local partner this almost inconceivably obscure company whose ultimate owner is an anonymous company, so a shell company, a company for whom there are no publicly named owners. And presumably the government isn't doing this in in, in public view. This is private negotiations. No, it's it's announced in the Gazette. Right. Um, Yeah, it's announced in the Gazette. This is put in um, Cobalt regulatory filings in, in the US. This is all in plain view, including the fact that there's no named ultimate owner for uh, the, the local partner. Now, a few years later, there, there's some brilliant work by some uh, incredibly brave Ang- Angolan um, investigative journalists and human rights activists. And then um, we did a bit of work on this story as well. And we were able to print on the front of the FT that the ultimate owners of this company, the local partner of 
the Goldman-backed oil company Cobalt, were three of the most powerful men in Angola. The head of state security, a former general, and the head of the National Oil Company, which was in charge of allocating the rights. Now, th- this, is, to me, is the whole point here of what we're getting at. There's, there's two points to make. One is, if you just described what I've described in terms of the humans involved, anybody in the world will say, well, that's obviously corrupt, you can't do it. You insert one anonymous company and it creates the possibility for the fiction right. that we can all, should we choose to, buy into. And we do this in Britain all the time. The, the second and maybe even more important point here is that um, this isn't just some ex-general getting a yacht. This is um, a regime that beats its opponents to a pulp with metal bars, cementing its power by illegitimately, to, by, by privatising power in that way, by, by taking what belongs to the Commonwealth of Angola, in this case, to, the, to society at large, and privatising it and using that for political ends. And it's, it's no surprise that across Africa, which is where I know best, but you see it across Central Asia and other places too, when a big election's coming, a big natural resources deal goes down, there are various anonymous companies hidden in it, and then, for instance, um, Robert Mugabe ends up with $100 million to fund a brutalisation campaign of the opposition. It's absolutely life and death stuff, this. Uh, but in, as, as um, Saviano said, we don't think about it like this because the bodies aren't on our streets. Mm. And what about the direct impact here in the UK? London's high-end property market um, is absolutely one of the go-to destinations to give questionable funds a really strong veneer of respectability for all the reasons that, that Luke pointed out. First of all, it's quite attractive to live here. Um, you get to hobnob with all your, your neighbours and you've got this fantastic address, but also you get to drop off a large amount of money in one go and see that appreciate and value. Well, until Brexit happens, but I'm sure they're not that fast. Um, and uh, yeah, the, the scale is, is off the charts. I mean, it's like 120 billion. 122 billion pounds worth of property um, is owned via companies registered offshore. And of course, not all of that will be dirty money, but some of it will be completely legitimate reasons of trying to hide your property from your, your wife. wife. <laughs> and so how many properties are owned anonymously without us knowing who the who the real owners are? The latest analysis of land registry data suggests that's around 86,000 properties. 57,000 of those properties are registered in uh, British overseas territories and Crown dependencies. I mean, how are people allowed to do that? I mean, I, mm. God, I confess mm. my ignorance of this, but I mean... It just seems extraordinary that you're allowed to be like, why don't we just stop people buying properties in the UK anonymously? I mean, I hear you have some experience experience in politics. I blame the politicians myself. Which which politician in their right mind is going to support a policy that would underban house house prices? I mean, if that... This is the... Is that right? Well, to my mind, this is partly... At the very, very, very high end, though. This is, I think, part of the really insidious nature of what we're talking about is that the what I would call kleptocratic money, has aligned itself with broadly with political interests in the West, which is rising house prices um, and mm. uh, an open economy. Mm. Um, and sort of terrifyingly, those things are fused. I think if you were to somehow click your fingers and remove all the dirty money from the British property market, mm. I, think, I think there'd be a significant fall in house prices. Would, would, would taking away the anonymity get rid of the dirty money from the British property market? Couldn't you just sort of pick a proxy to be, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, um, but by that logic, you know, you wouldn't have any laws against crime altogether. Right. But, um, but I, I think the point being like, actually, um, I'm going to weirdly stick up for David Cameron here. Um, so he promised us transparency in the UK property market back in 2015. Um, and then if you remember, he hosted this massive anti-corruption summit in 2016, which um, for people like 
I know Tom and I, it was kind of like, oh, we're popular. <laughs> That's an issue. <laughs> it's in the newspapers. This is amazing. So this summit was held in, in 2016 and he promised it again. Um, but if you remember, something else happened in the summer of 2016. Um, and unsurprisingly, when <laughs> Brexit happened and Dave left, um, kind of, yeah, the, uh, the attention on this kind of diminished. So we have got now a commitment to have a property register, but it's not going to be fully implemented until 2021. So it's been through multiple rounds of consultation um, we're going to see draft legislation out this summer and it's going to be tabled properly next year um, but to be honest for us it kind of feels like this idea has been um, doing the rounds for a really long time it's been consulted on twice um, we're basically giving the corrupt another three years to hide divest sell uh, before this register comes in I think there's great value in the fact that we're building up more and more data mm-hmm. um, battle by battle on who owns what and what human beings own, as opposed to companies. Yeah. But I also think there's a slight danger in relying on a profusion of data alone and forgetting the fact that we're trying to enforce the criminal law. Um, so y- you could, I think, argue to, to, to look at it a slightly different way and to say when you're caught speeding or you get something wrong in your tax return, the strict liability offences, right? It doesn't matter why. It doesn't matter if there's a good reason for those things happening. You're, you're at fault. If you were to take a similar approach to kind of anti-money laundering, anti-corruption, and say, if you have engaged in business, if you've sold a house, taken a local partner, uh, bought a company, um, and your counterparty in that deal was a shell company, was an anonymous company, and you didn't demonstrably know the human beings behind it, and it was subsequently shown that that deal was corrupt, so it subsequently showed that those people were public officials, or for instance, you'd be treated as, as if you had known. That's the basic premise of the of American anti-corruption law. And that's why it's been... So, so they have stronger laws than us. They, there's a very strong element of, in, in terms of what we're talking about today of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which was passed in 1977 and sat there for ages. And then the DOJ, the Department of Justice, got um, realised what a powerful tool it could be. Uh, and there's a very strong part of that which basically says... Um, I don't know if you can quote it word for word, but the um, the, bit, the bit that I'm thinking of is um, where they say you're guilty of corruption if you could reasonably have been expected to know. Yeah. So that's the definition of, of knowing. So it's a, similar to the UK bribery act. So you've got to have re- reasonable, um, adequate procedures um, as well. But I think, yeah, so the, the problem is with the, as I understand it at least, the UK Bribery Act, it doesn't extend to these further kind of issues of economic crime. So we've got liability um, around bribery, but money laundering, um, any other predicate offence around economic crime, not so hot. So would that mean if I sold a property to somebody who was a shell company and it was for money laundering, I could be liable? Is that the point? Yeah, effectively handling stolen goods, I'd say, would be the comparison. So if I mm. to put it the other way around, if I used uh, my position as the uh, Minister of Works of um, Tajikistan to steal $100 million, I put that in a shell company, and I use that shell company to buy your house directly from you. Um, or, or more likely, you're the, you're the banker who arranged yeah. that deal. And you didn't check, or you didn't keep on file somewhere in your own files who, who the real person was. It later emerged that it was me, the Public Works Minister of, of Tajikistan. You're liable then. 
I mm. sort of think it, that would just massively incre- increase the risk of doing business with with anonymous companies. Yeah, I, I think that's um, a really good point. And I, I think um, something that we haven't touched on yet maybe is the role of professional enablers in this. So one of the things that Luke was talking about is how attractive London is. It's because we have the law, we have the city. Um, as you said, we're really, really good at handling money. All those reasons that legitimate investment comes here, precisely the same reasons why we've got dirty money coming in as well. Um, and uh, kind of that talking about strict liability goes to the point the incentives just aren't there for you to do your job properly. Um, you are supposed to be regulated, you're covered by the money laundering regulations, you have your money laundering reporting officer, um, you're supposed to be submitting suspicious activity reports to the National Crime Agency. There's lots of acronyms around this, but at the end of the day, um, National Crime Agency reckons there's more than £90 billion worth of dirty money impacting on the UK every single year. Something's gone wrong and it's this issue of incentive and enforcement. If you are making that call as a poor old money laundering reporting officer and saying, this, this looks a bit dodgy, they don't necessarily have the power to refuse that business because the people higher up in that bank may be like, nah, it's worth it. Our risk appetite is greater. And they're not facing the consequences. It's surprising to me that there's no EU-wide regulation in place. The EU Anti-Money Laundering Directive um, just had its fifth um, iteration passed. And uh, that's going to be pretty exciting, actually, for, for nerds, um, because everyone's going to be following the UK's lead on having a public register of company owners. So that's the main um, takeaway okay, from you know, that. You better explain what that is. So... The uh, Public Register of Beneficial Owners of Companies um, is something that the UK brought in in 2016. Um, You can Google it, Companies House Beta. Go into a little search box, type in the name of your neighbour, your partner, the company, um, and up comes what that company is, where it's registered and who owns it, particularly well, only if um, the beneficial owner has over 25% of the shares or voting rights. So that's our public register. So that's something that the UK owners. brought in, which yeah. is a is a step forward. It's fantastic. It's so this is the good idea to, in, in all this. This is probably the one public good registers. idea that exists to get excited about. Really excited. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, and that's what we're calling for on the property side of things is to kind of... Um, close that loophole around so uh, companies owning properties in the UK. So if you're a UK company that owns a UK property, we're going to know who you are because we've got the UK company register, which says who you are. If you're a foreign company, if you're an overseas company that owns a property, it's it's a, it's a brick wall. You're not going to find out, which is why we want this public register of property and also uh, public registers everywhere, please. So we've got this register in place as of 2016. What's it showing? Well, first of all, it's fantastic that we've got it. Um, however, the register, as, it, as it's currently run, does leave some room for, for improvement. Um, so we'd say the government does need to close some of these loopholes. We did some analysis recently, and it shows that thousands of UK companies are not actually complying with the rules, and some are filing some quite suspicious entries. So despite the effort so far, and it's fantastic that we have this public register at all, um, we still don't really know who owns thousands of these UK companies. So some some top stats for you. Nearly one in 10 companies, so that's around 350,000, still haven't named what's known as a person of significant control, so the ultimate owner. Um, 4,000 beneficial owners are listed under the age of two. Um, one is yet to be born, so that's really entrepreneurial <laughs> toddler. Um, and then on the more serious side of things, um, the, the, these are probably mistakes, which fair enough, people, people make mistakes when they're filling in forms. Um, but there's a serious side. So um, 
four in five Scottish limited partnerships haven't even bothered to name a PSC. Um, and Person of significant control. Yes, thank you. Um, and five beneficial owners um, allegedly control more than 6,000 companies, which raises cause for concern. They might be nominees rather than the real person. So um, this analysis, first of all, it's only possible because we have a public register, um, which is the key thing that, that we really need um, and to, to recognise it and welcome. But um, it needs to be fit for purpose. Companies have, have only a handful of people looking at thousands of bits of data. So they need more resources um, and they need more responsibility as well to be able to ensure that these companies are complying. And they also need to make an actual enforcement of this. I mean, if you put the wrong information up, um, you can be liable for a fine, you can face a two-year jail sentence. So far, no efforts of enforcement have been made. So um, yeah, that's what we'd like to see. Are the UK offshore tax havens covered by this when the paradise papers came out the recent revelations half of the mm, dubious business seemed to be going through the british virgin islands in the least in the paradise papers and that's a british territory so this is the 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 british offshore tax havens are a big part of this they are absolutely key yes so um it's in the when the panama papers came out so that was a, a year and a half ago now yeah um over half of the companies named in the panama papers were registered in the british virgin islands um it's absolutely critical to the financial secrecy that allows corruption to happen and for people to to steal every every major corruption scandal basically and and, and sorry to go into technicalities but david cameron did say in 2013 that there would be a register of beneficial owners of these companies. Is that happening? So it's happened in the UK and it's definitely not happening in the British Overseas Territory. So they've ignored all that business. So what the government will tell you, and they've been telling us for some time, that they're making really, really good progress and that we should be really supportive of the British Overseas Territories for what they've done. What they've done is agree to exchange information with British law enforcement on a 24-hour turnaround. That is a far cry from the public registers that you need because this means that, first of all, law enforcement have to be really specific. You can't just do a generic, I think I want to look into this company today. They've got to have a legitimate reason to do so. So, so no fishing expeditions. Um, and secondly, the, the likes of us, um, tax inspectors, law enforcement in other countries have got no idea. It's, a, it's, it's completely blocked off still. We, the British government, could force our overseas territories to do this, couldn't we? We'd have to legislate. And I don't think, as I understand it, there's been several attempts to legislate and there's never been a majority for it. It's. Um, I, I wouldn't want to do Margaret Hodge down, um, but uh, yes, uh, that it is possible to pass an this order. This is the Labour MP Margaret Hodge who's been trying to do this. Yes, yeah, she's been, been abs- working for years on all of this stuff. Absolute stalwart yeah. champion for it, um, and um, you know. I, I believe in Margaret. I think she can get it done. But uh, yes, so there could be, um, the UK does have the power to pass an order in council um, and it gets quite antiquated because of how colonial. They'd be very <laughs> annoyed. I mean, this, I mean, what happened, was, as I understand it, well, correct me if I go wrong here, is that David Cameron wanted to do this. They kicked up a massive fuss, did a big lobbying operation, they being the overseas British territories, and then it sort of didn't, it hasn't happened. They have an argument, which is that, I mean, it's this, I'm going to simplify it massively, but which is that um, after the as the British Empire declined, they were encouraged to do right, something diversify. to have their own economies, <laughs> and their their, yeah. their economic model became what being a conduit for the world's dirty money. Yeah, that's that's right. And going to your point, yes, um, David Cameron was really keen for them to have public registers, um, but it seems like the lobbying efforts got the best of him. Um, from what initially was talked about, public registers were the gold standard, and that's what they all should have aspired towards. As time went on and we got closer to that anti-corruption summit when 
the actual decisions would have to be made, that was downgraded to a global standard. So now the UK government is in a position of saying, well, they only have to have public registers when the rest of the G20 gets on board which means we're waiting for Trump, Jinping, Putin and, and, to all bring these public registers. So they give themselves an awful get out. Jeff and I were talking about this earlier. I mean, presumably they, these territories will come along and say, if we unilaterally disarm and introduce this register, we're screwed because that's our whole economic model. Yeah. You know, with uh, the hope of dirty money, we do it really well. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sort of defending that, but, mm-hmm. but I mean, just, I'm just, I'm sure they wouldn't put it that way either, but just explain, like that, no. they explain <laughs> that. What, what's the response to that? Well, tough, that, tough luck. No, they're, they're, they're right. They're the bigger, the increasingly the biggest tax haven in the world is the U S mm. I mean, the, the U S states are replacing Delaware, okay. I think is Delaware, Nevada, um, Nevada um, for assorted Dakotas, mm. Um, that um, are, are, are hoovering up this kind of business. I, th- I think mm. I think that argument is is valid. So I'm the chief honcho of the British Virgin Islands. I mean, I'm not just the British. <laughs> it's a secret. The chief How honcho of the yeah, I've kept it quiet. <laughs> uh, the, of the British Virgin Islands comes in the room and says to both of you, "Well, look, I can do this, but uh, my economic, you know, it's going to be a disaster." What What's your answer? First of all, I mean, profiting off other people's yeah. pain. Quite. Yeah quite a shoddy argument yeah. to start with. But secondly, um, you know what? <laughs> We're in this, this funny position, um, especially at the moment with the UK saying people want to come to us and invest in us because we have got such um, integrity and people want to come and invest because we are transparent, we have the rule of law. And all of a sudden we're turning around and accepting the argument that not having integrity and financial transparency would harm your economic outlook. So um, I think also talking businesses in general and also um, those wanting security do actually want transparency as well. This isn't just about people like us working for kind of campaigning organisations that care about international development and are just good eggs. Um, This is also um, companies wanting to know what the risk they're exposed to is. They want to know who they're doing business with. Um, And uh, transparency is absolutely key key to to that and to making good business decisions. If you're talking about um, capitalism, it flows on, it relies on the free flow of information. It's indefensible for them to argue that they should be allowed to continue to do exactly what they do. But they would argue that they are being made the scapegoats for a sort of global system of money laundering, Um, which which through its kind of various disguises, it's, it's, it seeps through these kind of these property investments we're talking about, through the offshore companies. But don't forget the way it funds subtler things, the way it funds political influence. We've got a president of the US whose entire business model is based on financial transactions that flow through anonymous companies, mm. a lot of that money coming from Russia. Um, we, we've got um, an array, not far from where we're sitting now, of um, extremely well-resourced PR companies that will represent um, basically anybody um, from um, any parts of the world and, and and try to launder their image. And crucially, as we were saying earlier, the fact that they channel their money through uh, anonymous companies allows the space for that fiction to be created, that fiction of legitimacy, which is the key to the whole thing. Mm. So last question, if, if we appoint you as the sort of um, head tax people in the Jeffocracy, What's the sort of and you got first hundred days? Jeff calls you in, asks you your number one priority. What what would you? Bearing in mind that I have got lucrative energy contracts for <laughs> <Yeah, so, exactly. laughs> uh, and made multiple offshore interests. Uh, what would you do? 
I think I'll just do what I think there's a coalition of us, as Luke said, let's just get rid of the secrecy that allows this to happen. There's absolutely no reason for company ownership to be secret. And uh, yeah, so Jeff, please, <laughs> please make it all public. Company, property ownership, all public. Yeah. And and anything that isn't public is your, you carry a strict liability. So if you do business mm. with any anonymous company and it's found to be corrupt, you're liable for that. Fantastic. Tom and Naomi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Quite a lot to get your head around. Yeah, and I, I think the the idea of the shell companies and the property yeah. ownership not being anonymous is obviously a brilliant idea yeah. and that's the way it should go. Something I wanted to ask you was something that came up was that successive governments have kind of turned a blind eye to it. Oh, this was the feeling that they've turned a blind eye to it because actually we like that money, no matter where it's come from, we like that money in the economy. Does that ring true to you? Well, as always, I think you've really hit the nail on the head. I I was going to say that, you know, in a way, there's all kinds of policy issues here. But I think the sort of fundamental issues are sort of, is just a big question for the country, which is, do we think that we still, you know, we'll have your money, however dirty it is? Or do we think to ourselves, hang on a minute, we've got to have a big change? Because when I was in the Treasury, and people talked about getting rid of the non-DOM rule, that's sort of, you know, people who could be resident here, but not pay tax here, but they were so-called non-domicile. It was all at that time, which was sort of 20 years ago, it was all, what about the Greek tycoons? You know, we're going to, they're all going to leave the country, da 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 da. Now, it's all changed a lot since the fall of the Berlin Wall and the Russian oligarchs and so on. Now, non DOM rules have been changed a bit by, by Osborne under pressure. But I think, I think fundamentally, we've got to say it's not good for our country to have these kind of dodgy, super rich people buying up our property and doing their dirty dealings here and we're going to do something about it i think i think it's a sort of change of mentality really reasons to be cheerful a podcast about ideas with ed miliband and jeff lloyd you should celebrate yourself every day but some days you should celebrate with jewelry whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. 
you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Share your thoughts. As we said at the beginning, uh, it's it's really thorny and there's not that much to be optimistic about. There's a couple of ideas, but maybe you've got ideas on how we fix all this. Or maybe you're an oligarch and you'd like to come on. Yeah. Or maybe you're an oligarch and you'd like to supp- suppress this episode. I mean, everyone has their price. Oh, maybe you God. think we're being unfair to oligarchs and you'd like to declare your oligarchy and come on and... Absolutely. I mean, if you're an oligarch listening to this and you're thinking, yeah. we're getting a bad rap here, yeah. like, why don't you send a private jet for us? Um, we'll, we'll come meet you in Monte Carlo. You can show us your yacht and all the great things you're doing for society. <laughs> You know, you can show us what an oligarch's life, how misunderstood you are uh, over the course of a couple of weeks, and and we'll try and rectify the situation. Sounds good. Uh, This comes from Sebastian Winterflood, who, if he is an oligarch, he doesn't mention it. He's got a very Uh, appropriate name. Yeah, Winterflood's a great surname, isn't it? It is. Who says, subject, uh, Jake Yap's hydrogen power storage system. The reason we don't... Yapster. Yeah, the Yapster. He says the reason we don't already use electrolyzed hydrogen for energy storage is twofold. Firstly, it's highly explosive. Think of the Hindenburg. I was thinking of the Hindenburg, you know, but I felt like it was such an ignoramus thing to say. Well, you you know, from the mouths of babes sometimes. Uh, Secondly... Hydrogen atoms are extremely small, the smallest atoms, in fact. This means it'll fit through unreasonably small gaps in seals for valves and even seep through solid metal over time. He also says, as a fellow borderline millennial, I endorse endorse this term. So this was like Jake Gap's idea for like turning solar power into hydrogen, blah, blah. And and we thought it sounded too good to be true. And it was. Yeah. Right. Uh, we also, last week was on uh, our episode on unions. We've had lots of uh, responses on that. Uh, one response, this is not the only one that said this. I, it's uh, from Emily. She says, Dear Ed and Jeff, Jeff I'm a long-time listener, first-time correspondent, and great fan of the podcast. Had a lot of favourite episodes, Transport Education, but this week's episode on trade unions was especially inspiring. I was a bit sad, though, that you didn't give a shout-out to the tens of thousands of members of the university and college union who are currently on strike across the UK in opposition to drastic cuts to their pensions. The strike is currently in its third week, with a further week of industrial action scheduled as well. I'm an American PhD student in modern British history, spending time on the pickets with my UK colleagues and seeing their enthusiasm for solidarity and collective action has definitely been a reason to be cheerful. A further reason are the many undergraduates who've come out to join us, written to the Vice-Chancellor to urge him to join us in opposing the pension cuts and supported our efforts. We have noticed, though, that many students are basically too young to know what a union or a strike or a picket is. So um, glad Emily and others have mentioned it. You know, the way the universities have behaved is really pretty bad. It's like a big cut to the pension without proper, you know, a basis for doing it, consultation, sense of fairness to the workforce. And it looked like there's now talks going on. A number of the universities are reversing their support for this cut to the pension. So hopefully progress is being uh, made partly, well, in large part, thanks to the action that's been taken. 
Dear Ed and Jeff, this is from Lauren Gilmore. This is the first time I've ever written into any program ever. Wow. And I was moved to do so by episode 24 on trade unions. And also the guy who wrote in last week who hadn't written to any program as an adult since Blue Peter. If he can do it, why can't I? And by the way, just in passing, we have had a lot of traffic on the old snow leopards situation. I think people are now thinking they're going to get free snow leopards for having written in. Um, <laughs> but we've of, had some beautiful photoshopped image of you, images of you with snow leopards. This is to do with me buying a snow leopard for Rosie Winterton, not a real snow leopard, but a, sponsoring a snow leopard. Check you, last week's check episode last for week's details. Episode before I go into all of the, the business again. I'm a young, back to Lauren, I'm a young trade union activist based in the Glasgow area, and I felt compelled to tell you about a project that's been running for a couple of years, and it does sound like a great project, this, that is aiming to unionise young workers in hospitality retail and other low-paid service sector workers it's called better than zero and she supplies a facebook reference which we'll supply on our facebook uh, doodah it was initially started as a campaign against zero hours contracts but it's now burgeoned into, a, burgeoned into a campaign against precarious work they were responsible for changing the staff tips policy at las, las iguanas where staff used to have to give up three percent of their tips for no clear reason BTZ organised a few days of direct action against them and the restaurant quickly changed their policy so staff could keep all of the tips. They've done some excellent work in Scotland in highlighting bad employment practices, representing young workers and harnessing the power of digital and social media. The key thing about this is it's being run by young people with experience of working in low-paid jobs and they're putting social events and club nights to raise awareness that it's not okay for young people to be treated in the ways they are at work. I'm sure Beth and Zero would be delighted to have a shout out by you guys. And there it co- is. Yeah. Big shout out. And she also out. says, by the way, that we are Britain's greatest bromance. All right. And this, this comes from Charlotte, who says, um, Hi, Ed and Jeff. Your education podcast was brilliant with loads of food for thought. I've been thinking about how to reward students for their non-academic endeavours. And Jez's comments on the National Back, Back Laurie, I think that is, um, have given me a push to make it happen. I should mention that Charlotte's ahead of Year 12 in Inner London. She says, it also made me remember that I work in a state school that's already doing loads of positive things. For example, an excellent performance faculty and is progressive, so that's really cheering. The mental health episode included that idea about training teachers, which I love and will investigate. I'm also going to put something about trade unions into PSHCE too. I hadn't really thought about people. Do you know what that is, Jeff? Yeah, of course I know. It's personal, social, health and citizenship education. Well done. You're good on the acronyms today. Um, I hadn't really thought about people in the private sector joining one before. And after hearing Glenn Moore talk about fake more, news. More, more. More, more. More, more, How do you like it? Um, talking about fake news education the other week, uh, I got in touch and he's coming in to give an exam, uh, give an assembly. And she also says that um, her she's ahead of year 12 and in a London near my old school. And would I come? Uh, can't make any promises, but if she emails, we'll do our best. She says, Jeff, you're welcome too. Well, it's almost like you excluded me for that I know I did. I did basically completely exclude you. It was because it was around the corner from my old school, so I thought it was about me. I hadn't read it properly, but it was not a George Ezra situation. I just want to make clear. What is happening to our bromance? (laughs) It's, it's, It's on the rocks. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. 
And here to pitch ideas, which could be potential reasons to be cheerful, we're joined by comedian Pippa Evans. Hello. Hi. Hello. Hi. Uh, Pippa, before we get going, um, can I ask you about the Sunday Assembly? Oh, yeah. I I, I know what that is, but I don't know if I've made the connection that you were something to do with it. Can you tell people about it and sort of how it got going? Yeah, sure. (laughs) Okay, good, yeah. Uh, Well, so Sunday Assembly was a concept that was created by me and my friend Sanderson Jones. Uh, who's also a comedian, and we were on the way to a gig in Bath, and I was driving, and we started, for some reason, uh, as you do on the way to a gig, start talking about life. Uh, and, uh, and one of us said, um, well, I've always wondered if it was possible to create church, but without the God bit, because I really like all the community stuff, I love the singing, but I don't believe in God, I don't believe in those texts, but I really love what churches do, uh, in general, uh, let's just distinguish between churches and the church. Uh, but the and, uh, and we're like, well, let's have a go. So in 2013, we had the first Sunday assembly, which is essentially uh, a secular community that celebrates life. So we have songs. So we have pop songs instead of hymns. What, we, what songs would you have, for example? Uh, well, uh, we might sing "Don't Stop Me Now" by Queen, <laughs> or "Don't Look Back in Anger" by uh, Oasis, or songs that start with something positive rather yeah. than "Don't." And do you have a hymn book, or is it on so a we have project, big projections? Because actually, hymn books make you look down. It's like group karaoke, basically. Yeah, it's like Masioki, the group yeah. Masioki. Uh, but but then the songs we try and link to a theme. So there'll be a theme, and there'll be a speaker who will talk about something. So the theme might be something like I don't know, uh, self development, or it might be uh, how to get to the moon. So it might be a scientist, or it might be someone who works in psychology, or and. Uh, and then we'll have someone from the community come up and tell a story about when they've tried to implement something like this in their life. Uh, and then we have a moment of reflection. We sit in silence together because, again, how often do you ever do that? Sit in a room and just reflect on your day, your week, your month. And is it still going? Yeah, well, there's uh, 55 around the world. Wow. Uh, and All from that conversation on, in the all car? All from a conversation in a car. Uh, and I always say it's a bit like um, going jogging. So we're... Because when you say to yourself, oh, I wonder if you could make church without God, you don't generally just go and do it. But if you've said to someone else, yeah, let's do that. Let's have a go. You kind of have to do it. Right. So that's how we ended and up. it happens every Sunday, it. does it? It happens twice a month in London. And are there uh, ones around the country as well? Yep. So there's one in Manchester. There's one in Reading. There's one in Sheffield. There's one in Leeds. There's one in Edinburgh. And what about far-flung destinations? What the, what's the furthest flung? Uh, we got one in Nashville. Uh, wow. We love those Nashville guys. And we've got one in LA. We've got one in... How remarkable. Yeah, it's very exciting. Uh, in uh, Melbourne, Australia, uh, which I set up when I was out there doing the Melbourne Comedy Festival. So, um, yeah, so it was really exciting. And, and it actually really bit into something which is people feeling really disconnected yes. and lonely and lost. Uh, and people have come and really genuinely it has changed their lives. Like they've come along and they can't speak out loud because they're so anxious and suddenly they're talking in front of 400 people or uh, people that felt like they didn't have any friends and they were a massive loser suddenly have a whole group of people that oh, agree with and them. And if I may ask, what's it done for you? I mean, what's it been like for you to be do, do this? Well... Well, Ed Miliband, uh, it's made me, I have to say, it's made, <laughs> made me a lot more confident, I'll tell you that. I, I used to never talk as myself. I used to always be a character. And now I very rarely do anything as a character comic. I talk as myself. So there's something about being given space to fi- figure out who you are. Uh, so that's what's been really you helpful founded for me. a global movement. Yeah, founded a global movement. That's pretty You're impressive. a cult leader. <laughs> 
Yeah. No, it's not a cult. Uh, well, that's what we would say if yeah. it was one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you're here to, to give us some ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. Do you want to give us your first one? Uh, yes. Uh, I would like to offer um, that people should once a week be given a voucher for Marks and Spencers. Because I feel... Like when you go into Marks and Spencers and, and buy your lunch, Marks, but you feel a bit special. I've got this idea about sandwiches. Yeah, what is it? See, I think the thing about sandwiches that you don't make at home is they never quite are to your liking. And therefore, I think there is a gap for a sandwich shop where you get to make your own. It's called Subway. <laughs> no, you can't make your own at Subway. I mean, well, you don't, don't, you don't even no, want I mean, like, literally make your own. I mean, like, make your own. You do the butter so it's the right amount of butter. So it's or like not making butter. your sandwiches at home but paying more for the privilege. <laughs> Basically, yes. <laughs> is that, but I think let's follow your strand. Let's yes and your strand, which is, is it because, you know, at home, again, the reason the reason I do like takeaway sandwiches is because I don't have those things in my house. To, no, but you have the selection right. of ingredients. Exactly. But you get to make it in the way. So, like, I always think there's too much goop. Right, there are too many sandwiches with lots of goop. I don't like goop. Uh, I'm anti-goop. There's always too much goop, and the goop is not nice. I don't okay. want your you cherry mustard. I don't want your cherry here. mustard with a pinch of horseradish <laughs> or your sort of, you know, pastrami on some right. like weird substance. I, like, you know, I, do, do, but do you know what I mean? There's something about making your own sandwich. It's you know, I, I would have it simple. Um, just with, like, probably with butter, um, <laughs> the right amount of filling. Now, I talked to somebody about this the other okay. day. They stopped was me it a venture the... capitalist? <laughs> uh, no, it was somebody who's running a kind of healthy sandwich shop and who likes a podcast. Right. And I, he started wanging onto him about this idea. <laughs> and he sort of, he's kind of said it was impractical. Uh, but, but, you know, I think there is a sort of gap and then it's kind of like, you know, it'll be a sort of you'd line up, you'd make your sandwich, it'll be the way you wanted it. I don't believe that will work. And the reason I don't believe it will work is because you wouldn't be able to trust people to not put their knife, like they put it in the butter and then they'll put it in the marmite. So they'd, they'd have to have, they'd have, they'd be thousands you have of rules about what to knives do. for each of the condiments. Uh. <laughs> And, and have you seen how people behave at an all-you-can-eat buffet? They would just overstuff oh, the sandwiches. Yes. Then you'd be have to wait. You could weigh the sandwich or something on the way out. On the you know on the way out. I do, do you not? You don't buy this. I don't, don't you think? I, uh, okay, let me ask you that. Let me ask you a related <laughs> question. Then is the sandwich you buy in the shop nicer than the sandwich you make at home on on average? Almost never. Correct. Yeah. Right. That. Therefore, I have a key. That is, I've never that, seen you so fast. Based, <laughs> the, 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 my insight is based on that. On right. that. Okay. But, would, but I would. Have you ever had a nicer then, sandwich at a shop than you've made at home? I have not. Yes, I have. Really? Um, but, but I think that's maybe because maybe my uh, making sandwiches at home ratio is higher than yours. The nicest sandwich you've ever made at home is that nicer than the sandwich that you've bought in the shops? Oh god. Well, that's. Uh, I mean, it's the nicest sandwich I've ever made at home. <laughs> is a strong cheddar with my mum's homemade marmalade on white bread. Mm. Exactly. Pretty good. Exactly. But that. I bet you can't get that at the shops. No, you can't get yeah. that at the shops. Exactly. <laughs> That's the whole point. <laughs> Honestly. I think it's because your mum's withholding a marmalade, marmalade from the market. Though. Yeah. I want, I want, I just, if the case this idea then takes off, yeah. I want some sort of credit for it. Because like shop bought sandwiches, just, they're, they're like, they never 
they look nice on the outside, but they're always slightly disappointing. The bread's a bit soggy, or the filling's not quite right, or the goop is too goopy. I mean, there's just always a problem. You need to write this idea down, uh, seal it in an envelope and post it to yourself. Really? Otherwise somebody could steal it. Do you think it's that good? (laughs) I'm humouring you. I I feel like what we've done is taken my original offer of an idea and Mm. turned it into your idea. (laughs) That's That's basically the point of this podcast. (laughs) So we succeeded. So are we, are we having are we having Pippa's idea or are we having your mutated Mine. version? Okay. <laughs> uh, Pippa, what do you have next? Uh, passive aggressive headphone dispenser. Um, so these are um, sort of small headphones that you a uh, little little you know like uh, when you go to a gig they have those things to with ear protectors. Yes, we'd have them, but uh, but it's earphones for people that have forgotten their earphones or are listening to music out loud on the bus watching their good. I like iPod. this. Uh, so you can say, "Excuse me, do you have any headphones?" And they say, "No." And you go, "Here you go." And you give it to them with the tone of, "Stop listening to that awful music." It's like so a contraceptive you, machine. It's like a contraceptive, but for our ears. Yeah. So we don't have to be all impregnated exactly. by the sounds. So you're saying you don't enjoy the music people are playing on the phones? It's never your favourite tunes? Well, this, I wouldn't mind if they took requests. <laughs> <laughs> but um, if I could push it a stage further, I would ban all use of headphones at all and that you should only listen to music or podcasts in your house. Right. So that so that you actually... So you uh, do present. want socialising. You want sun, Sunday assembly sort of style... He's what he's trying to do. What he's trying to do here, Yeah, what is he trying to do? He's trying to corner you into saying it's good to talk to strangers on public transport because this is his big thing. He's had. Oh, I'd agree with you on that. I oh, love no. talking to people on buses and transport. No. I've had some amazing. I met a witch on the eighty-eight bus. Really? Yeah, and it was only because we weren't wearing headphones we managed to have a conversation. And she said the best line I've ever had. She said, um, "She said I'm moving. I'm moving to Cornwall to be a witch." Uh, and I said, "I said, oh, you're a witch." And she said, "Yes, darling." Well, we're all witches. We're the granddaughters of the witches they didn't burn. Aha. Wow. That's a good line. A good line, isn't it? Yeah. And I said, I'm really glad I met you. She looked like me from the future, so I think it might have been me <laughs> from the future. Was there anything outward that may, suggested she was a witch? A leg big of, pointy leg of hat. Newt, <laughs> leg of Newton, a big cauldron. Yeah. <laughs> and she kept going, nah! Uh, no, absolutely nothing. Uh, mm. She just told me she was a witch. I, I really don't think you should stereotype witches, by the way. I didn't say anything about a pointy hat. <laughs> she <laughs> said, I'm a witch. She said, I'm a witch. A white witch. And they shouldn't specify what kind right. of witch. Um, but we, at the end of the conversation, we didn't swap names or anything. We just rode on the 88 bus down to Stockwell. And then... Uh, and, and then we both bowed to each other instead of saying goodbye. It was really weird, not through a... Instinctively. Instinctively, Did you we mention bowed the Sunday Assembly? Uh, no, I didn't mention the Sunday right. Assembly because at that point I was being converted to become to a sort of druid. Yeah, yeah. which I, but she said you can go to lectures, you can go to druid lectures. Uh, so I, I might start doing that. Definitely. You've got a lot to fit in, though. I've got a lot to fit in. I don't know if I've got time to be a witch and do Sunday Assembly. Yeah. Pippa, if people want to find more about the Sunday Assembly... How do they do so? I mean, I guess they type it into Google. Type Sunday Assembly into Google and you will find Sunday Assembly or go to sundayassembly.com and you'll find it. Uh, or you can follow me at I am Pippa Evans on Twitter. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, we've got something swanky and nerve-wracking to do in between now and the next podcast. We're off to the Broadcasting Oscars. The Broadcasting Press Guild Awards. Indeed, and we've been nominated for Podcast of the Year. The first time this category has has happened. Yeah. So, uh, like, we're preparing a speech. Are we going to 
just in case. Temporary tattoos. Temporary tattoos. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to thrash out before we go there at the end of the week. Because I wouldn't want to go like wearing a pair of jeans and you being all smart or the other way around. Okay. Don't well, you think? We'll, we'll, we'll make sure we coordinate And we'll outfits. report back on whether we won. Yes. I'm hoping there's no exit poll, that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Uh, we should um, we should thank our guests for this week. Yes, Luke Harding, Guardian foreign correspondent and uh, all-round expert on uh, Russia and some of the issues to do with Russia around money laundering and so on. Uh, Tom Burgess, investigative journalist at the FT, Financial Times, and Naomi Hurst, senior campaigner for Global Witness. I thought they were great guests. Yeah, as was Pippa Evans, uh, just just fantastic. And Sunday Assembly sounds like such a great idea, doesn't it? We should go. Yeah. Emma Corsham produced our podcast with policy research and backup from Alex Weissbrice and Lindsay Todd. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made our idents. Music by Ed Seed and our artwork was designed by Emily Power. Power. Yeah. <laughs> She'll like that. Power to the Emily. More well, power to her elbow. Yeah. yeah. The power to all of them. Do you think? Def- definitely, yeah, yeah. You know, if I'd it- like to meet Gail Lofthouse. Well, when we do the live show in Sheffield, I think yes. she's based in Leeds, so maybe she could be coaxed, coaxed slightly south. So you think maybe we could, when she does live from Sheffield, it's the reason to be cheerful, blah, blah, blah. She could actually be live in Sheffield doing Yes, it. absolutely we should do that. She could be the narrator. Definitely. Is that a narrator? Probably announcer. an announcer, isn't it? Yeah. 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 So I guess you're off to record another podcast. <laughs> no, I'm off to the seaside. I told you this. But you must be recording one podcast every two days. <laughs> seven divided by three, which is two and a third. Your arithmetic is, is wonderful. All those years in the treasury. Shows. Yeah, it really, so it's really Every does. two and a third days you are doing a podcast. That must be some kind of record, apart from the people who do the daily on the New York Times <laughs> daily, because he must record it five days a week, which is uh, one podcast every five, every uh, can, one can, day and two fifths. You can express that as a fraction. I can, yeah. seven over five. <laughs> do, you think you hold the, do you think you should get in the Guinness Book of Records, Norris, for the most podcasts? I think you should go on Countdown. You'd be great on the I numbers I bet there's round. nobody else. I could be the Carol Vorderman. There's, no, there's nobody else. In Britain with three podcasts, is there? I don't know. I mean, I just think like every, we're at a stage where sooner or later everybody will have a podcast. It's like... Well, if you have one podcast, some people who are particularly kind of greedy will have two, but <laughs> there'll be very few people with, uh, who are sort of so gluttonous that they'll have three. <laughs> He's been the podcast glutton. He's been the sandwich-making king of London. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. 